Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. I am a recent transplant to Virginia. I had a private practice out in San Diego, California for about 20 years. And my husband's from the area, and so we moved back over here. Well, he moved back, I came with him. And so we settled in Yorktown, down on the peninsula. And I'm working at a free clinic, Lackey Clinic, down in Yorktown. And I've had the opportunity to continue with the work I was doing with LDN on a smaller, smaller scale, but a different setting. So that's where I'm from. This is my first, first foray up into northern Virginia. So the traffic wasn't too bad, but the other side of the freeway looked bad. So um, I wanted to thank Care for Specialty Pharmacy because they have been supplying our patients in the free clinic with prescriptions for low-dose naltrexone over the past year and a half. So that's been a really nice thing to our, for our patients and a big help. So um, the history of naltrexone uh, was developed in 1963, competitive opioid receptor antagonist. In 1984, it was approved by the FDA for the treatment of opioid ad addiction. And for that treatment, it's used at the standard dose, which is 50 to 100 milligrams per day. Um, it is a pure antagonist at the various opioid receptors, delta, kappa, mu, and there's an endorphin called OGF, which we'll be talking about more, but that receptor as well. And at the standard doses, it blocks the effects of both the endogenous opioids, which are endorphins, and also the pharmaceutical opioids, which would be any of your standard pain medications. Um, it's a pure antagonist, which is important to know because a lot of people get confused and think that this is a controlled medicine or a narcotic or an opioid, and doctors all the time are confused and will say stuff to our patients, and so always really important to convey that to the patients. They can convey that to their other doctors. It's a pure inhibitor, so there, you cannot get any sort of narcotic effect off of it. Um, so the chemical structure, it's almost identical to one of the um, endorphins that we make naturally called metencephalon, which is the chemical name for it, also known as OGF or opioid growth factor. Um, LDN is an antagonist at the OGF receptors, and there are OGF receptors on a wide range of cells in the body. Um, we'll be talking more about that later. So when we talk about low-dose naltrexone, we're talking about doses that are about a tenth or less of the traditional treatment dose. Most of the research studies have used 4.5 milligrams per day, but if you talk to prescribers, they're using anything from 1.5 milligrams. Some people will take it up to five or six milligrams. When you talk about using ultra-low dose naltrexone, which is something I don't do a lot of, but pain management doctors do, you could go down as low as 0 0.5. Um, pediatric patients are typically using doses of 0 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. So the low-dose naltrexone, it binds to the endorphin receptors 
on the receptors for about an hour, hour and a half, hour and a half. And the blockade lasts about four to six hours. And we call it a paradoxical effect because you would think that something that would block the endorphin receptors would be not good. It would lead to pain and be uncomfortable and make you feel bad. But it's paradoxical because in these tiny dose, we find actually that makes people feel good and it generally has anti-inflammatory effects. And one of the effects it has is it increases the production of your own endorphins, your endogenous opioids. Looking at the research, there are basic science studies beginning in the 1980s, um, mainly by Dr. Zagan and McLaughlin out of Penn State. And that's now like a 30-year, 30, 30 or 40-year amount of research now that they've done um, in cell culture and animals. It's a lot, lot, lot of research. Um, clinically, uh, Dr. Bernard Bahari was the, probably the pioneer for this in mid-1980s. He was using it to treat HIV. He was a Harvard-trained um, physician who was a specialist in neurology. He was running the New York State Health Department, and this was during the time of the war on drugs, so naltrexone had just kind of been introduced, and he was aware of the research that was going on. and. Uh, the, tried it out for clinical use initially in his HIV patients and found that the patients who took LDN, they had um, better CD4 counts and actually fewer infections and better mortality rate. And then in the 1990s, really, he started using it for patients with MS. Um, the first published human trials in 2007 by Dr. Jill Smith, and that was a, a study for Crohn's disease, which we'll talk about that later. Um, I get to talk about pharmacology of LDN tonight, so I apologize if that's not your thing, um, and I'll try not to make it too technical. Um, but naltrexone exists um, in what we call a racemic mixture of isomers, so it's got a, a left-handedness and a right-handedness, a chorality. And so there's the dextronaltrexone and the levonaltrexone, and they do different things, which is why you see naltrexone being able to do so many things. Um, the dextronaltrexone primarily binds the toll-like receptors, which we'll talk about. The levonaltrexone is the one that we think is responsible for binding the opioid receptors. So we'll talk about the dextronaltrexone first because it's less interesting. Um, it has an antagonist effect of the TLR receptors, which exist on all kinds of cells. There are lots of different TLR categories. Some of them are responsible for cell growth, um, and so there have been a lot of research looking at use for cancer. That's not my specialty. Um, but the main ones we think about for autoimmune disease are the TLR receptors, which are on a lot of the macrophages, mast cells, microglial cells. Um, when the microglial cells are inappropriately activated, they produce a lot of inflammatory things, pro-inflammatory cytokines, substance P, nitric oxide, and so when you have inhibition of the microglial cells, um, you have a lot less inflammation. And some people have referred to LDN as a, uh, the first glial cell inhibitor. Um, so levonaltrexone works differently. It is the one responsible for having an antagonist effect at the opioid receptors. And as I mentioned before, it's a small temporary blockade what that does is it interferes with your body's production of endorphins in the feedback loop. And so in that process, it upregulates your endogenous opioid production. It'll go up, 
you know, 100, 200% during that next 24-hour period. It also upregulates the opioid receptors, so you're making a whole lot more receptors too. So you've got more endorphins, more endorphin receptors, and so you have all, a whole lot more interaction between the two, which is favorable to the immune system. So your endorphins are the natural peptides. They're produced in many cells. They regulate cell growth, in, in, including your immune cells. Um, they found that patients who have autoimmune disease tend to have low levels of endorphins. Uh, that was one of the first things that Dr. Bahari was looking at. It's very expensive to measure endorphin levels, so it's primarily just done in research settings. Um, one of the endorphins that's very important is called metencephalon, which we talked about earlier, also known as opioid growth factor. It's a very important immunomodulator. Uh, the opioid receptors are found in the central and peripheral nervous system. There's a lot of them in the GI tract. There's on the lymphocytes. So you get this brief blockade by the low-dose naltrexone. You have the rebound effect. You have more endorphins, including OGF, and you have an increased production of the OGF receptors. And I keep harping on this because it's going to come up when we look at MS. Uh, LDN has a lot of immunomodulatory effects. It activates the CD4-positive regulatory T cells that we call the Tregs. And there's a shift in the helper cells from the type 1 to the type 2, which is also favorable for the immune system. It's got other regulatory cells where it kind of it, um, calms a lot of our B cells and other immune cells that are you know, inappropriately revved up, and it decreases the inflammatory cytokines. So uh, we're going to go in now and talk about different disease states. So multiple sclerosis is probably the best studied um, autoimmune condition with low-dose naltrexone, and that's where most of the literature is, so I thought we'd start there. MS is an autoimmune disease that affects the central nervous system, estimated to affect about 400,000 people in the U.S. and 2 million worldwide, and it produces uh, neurologic deficits that we talk about being separated in space and in time. So they're in different parts of the body, presenting over a period of time. They don't, just don't hit everywhere all at once. Um, the pathogenesis, the blood-brain barrier breaks down, becomes leaky, and then you have invasion of these inappropriately activated T cells. The T cells, when they invade, they start secreting pro-inflammatory cytokines and antibodies inside the brain. There's also microglial cells that live there, and they get inappropriately activated. And so this whole cascade ends up leading to a lot of inflammation. You have damage to a number of cells in the brain, including the oligodendrocytes. You have the inflammatory plaques, and eventually you have demyelination, which is what you end up seeing on the MRI. So how we think the MS works, I mean, LDN works in MS, based off a lot of um, animal studies, tissue culture, um, and then basic science that we already know about LDN. So we think that what happens is you have the promotion of the anti-inflammatory T cells. Because the blood-brain barrier is already broken down, they're actually able to cross. And then they're able to inhibit um, the immune cells up there through cell-to-cell -cell contact and then anti-inflammatory cytokines. Um, the other thing that it does is it blocks the TLR receptor on the microglial cells, which are inappropriately activated, and it calms them down. And then there's the um, 
OGF access, which is important for immunomodulation, and it, it acts on that too. So there have been a lot of animal studies, um, and they have figured out a way to reproduce MS in animals and give them something called experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, which is called EAE, because it's easier to say. And it has a similar pro-inflammatory state. It shares a lot of the same features as MS. You see demyelination and neurodegeneration, so it's, it's a very um, nice way to be able to study MS without you know, using people. What they have found on these studies, and I didn't put the references up there because there's a lot of this, but we can get them. Um, during flares of MS in these animals, the endorphin levels and the OGF levels are decreased, and also the enzymes that break down OGF are increased. So, and they've also found that if you give animals OGF or LDN, you actually can correct some of this damage. You can reduce um, the proliferation of the microglial cells, you can reduce demyelination, and you can decrease um, damage. And you can also reverse the progression of the disease, uh, prevent damage, and reduce the frequency and severity of the relapses. And it's effective whether you give it at the onset of disease or if you wait till after the symptoms approve or um, appear. And um, studies have shown that the levels of OGF are low in the mice after the onset of it, even before the clinical signs appear. So this might be a way that we could use it in humans as a marker, and this is being looked at. If you give the animals LDN, it actually will bring the OGF level up to where it was before you gave the animals the disease. So before we go on and look at um, published studies for MS, this is a case study of a patient of mine from a number of years ago. He was a young man who presented with demyelinating disease. Um, started with double vision, and he was referred from his optometrist onto an ophthalmologist, onto a neuro-ophthalmologist. Um, ended up having um, lumbar puncture, brain MRI, and he had the typical demyelinating lesions. He had abnormal lesions in his spine. He had oligoclonal bands. And so because it was just a single event, it couldn't yet be called MS because you have to have multiple events. So this is something called clinically isolated syndrome. So we started him on LDN. Um, initially at three and then going up to 4.5 milligrams a day, which has been the studied dose in MS. Um, and he tolerated it very well, slowly got better, and about by five months all his visual symptoms resolved. And his MRI at six months was starting to show improvement. We followed him every six months and then every year, and then the two-year MRI um, did not have any active demyelination. It just showed these nonspecific white matter changes, and he's now eight years out with no recurrence. Um, and it's hard to tell on these, but I have the before and after. There's the one flare in the middle that you can kind of see that's, that's less bright in the second cut. They're not exactly because this was me going over to the radiology office and uh, stealing the films, but... This is back in the day when we still had films, by the way. Um, 
So we're going to look at some clinical trials. Um, so there's a study in 2008, Gironi, and this was published in the Journal of, Mu of Multiple Sclerosis. It was a six-month phase two multicenter pilot trial, and this was in Italy. 40 patients with primary progressive MS, and the primary endpoint was safety and tolerability. So this was not designed to look at efficacy. So their finding was that LDN was safe and well-tolerated. Only one patient progressed during the study, but it was only six months long. Um, it's found a significant reduction in spasticity. And they also measured beta-endorphin levels at one, three, and six months, and um, found them to be elevated from baseline, and that elevation lasted to one month out after um, the LDN um, was terminated. Um, the next study was Cree in 2010. This was published in the Annals of Neurology, UCSF. Um, single center, it was placebo-controlled crossover trial, um, eight weeks. The primary endpoint was quality of life. So again, this was not designed to look for efficacy. There were 80 patients who were enrolled and 60 patients completed the study. 10 dropped out, um, some for personal reasons, one had an adverse event that was not related to MS, and another person for perceived benefit. And then there were 10 patients where there were problems with the database or the surveys were incomplete. So that harmed the statistical power of the study. Um, but they found LDN was well tolerated, there were no serious event, adverse effects, and they found a significant, statistically significant improvement on mental health quality of life. The third study I have up there, I don't think I'm going to try and pronounce the author's name, 2010. This was published in the journal Multiple Sclerosis. It was at a university in Iran. Primary endpoint, again, was quality of life. 17-week, um, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover trial. Um, 96 patients over 17 weeks, and they were ranged in age from 15 years of age to 65 years of age. Um, they had all had MS longer than six months. Um, and they found it to be a safe therapeutic action, I mean, um, option. And there were, was improved quality of life, but I don't believe it was statistically significant in that trial. This is a case series, uh, retrospective chart review, Terrell. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Psychopharmacology in 2015. Retrospective review, looking at safety and tolerability. So there were 215 patients. Um, they'd taken LDN just over two years, 60% reporting improved fatigue and 60% um, reporting disease severity, improved disease severity. And this was at a dose of 3.5 milligrams per day. Um, that was at the Department of Neurology at Penn State. And this was also at Penn State. This was published in the MS Journal of Experimental, Translational, and Clinical Medicine. Um, retrospective study, over a 10-year period of time, there were two cohorts, 23 patients were on LDN alone, average time of three years, 31 patients were on Copaxone and LDN for an average of almost four years, and all of them had taken LDN for at least three months. And all the patients were over 18 years of age, they took somewhere between three and four milligrams per day. And the end point of this was basically to make sure that patients who took LDN alone were not at risk for harm. Um, and so they found that there was the, the end points that they were looking at um, 
Is that on the next slide? Yeah. So they did standard blood tests, time 25-foot walking trial, and changes in the MRI reports. And there were no significant differences between the groups. There was only one, pa one patient in the LDN-only group had multiple, multiple flares, whereas the other group had six. So again, this wasn't to look at efficacy. This was just looking, it was basically a non-inferiority study. This was a study, um, Ludwig, again at Penn State, 2017, the same journal. Um, there were four groups of patients, and what they did is they got all these patients and they measured the levels of metencephalon, which is the OGF, and what they found was that the OGF levels were decreased in MS patients, and when they got LDN, they came up back to normal. So the first group was patients who were in the neurology clinic for some reason other than MS, and they were healthy, and their level was 37. And the patients who had MS and were on Copaxone, their level was 22, so it was 40% lower. So you can see the reduction in the OGF levels. There were um, only four patients in the group who were on LDN alone, but those patients had a level of 45, let's see. So on the next slide, yeah, 45. So they were um, actually 23% higher than the healthy non-MS patients. They were 105% higher than the patients who were on Copaxone alone. And then if you look at the group who were on both the Copaxone and the LDN, they were basically the same level as the, the MX with Copaxone alone patients. So that is all I have for MS, and we're going to move on to Crohn's disease, which is probably the next second well-best study. Um, so Crohn's disease, chronic inflammatory disease of the GI tract, affects estimated 3 million people in the U.S., usually diagnosed in young adults, but not always. These patients are miserable. They have abdominal pain. They have diarrhea, bloody stools, weight loss, malabsorption. And the options that we have to treat them, a lot of them are not, um, they have fraught with a lot of side effects, very expensive. Um, the pathogenesis, there's increased permeability in the walls of the intestines. There's abnormal antigen presentation by the epithelial cells. You have um, immune cells that are inappropriately activated and recruited to the sites. You have high levels of inflammatory cytokines, and you have um, inflammation of the bowel walls that is transmural going from one side to the other. Um, the way we think LDN works in Crohn's disease is that it's decreasing your inflammatory cytokines, specifically the IL-6 and IL-2. Um, we think that via the TLR4 receptor on the mucosal cells that it's decreasing the translocation of the bacteria, and also with the LDN, you have these high levels of endorphins, and there are a lot of endorphin receptors all throughout the GI tract. So we think that's a potential for how they're interacting as well. Dr. Leonard Weinstein is a colleague of mine. He's also um, a medical advisor on the LDN Research Trust, so we've done a number of things together. I've borrowed a few of his case studies because he has great pictures, um, and with his permission. So, this is a case of his, a 40-year-old female with a long history of Crohn's disease who had actually had a total colectomy. Four years later, she presented with fatigue and diarrhea, and she was failing treatment with a TNF inhibitor. And so he started her on LDN, 
and we have the colonoscopy pictures before and after. And I don't know if this is if you can tell, but the one from after is a lot less red. The tissue is a lot more smooth. Um, looking at the literature, the first study was by Jill Smith in 2007. This was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. This was again at Penn State. Open level pilot prospective trial. The primary endpoint was safety and efficacy of LDN. So it was not designed to look for efficacy. Uh, it was using 4.5 milligrams a day. And it went by what's called the CDAI, which is Crohn's Disease Activity Index, which is partly subjective from the patient's report, and then there's some that goes into that from the um, providers as well. 17 patients over 12 weeks. If going by the CDAI scores, 89% had a response, you have some amount of improvement, and 67% of them actually went into remission. So this was a really important study. And she did follow-up ones, which are on the next slides. There's um, a case report in the literature by Shannon, 2010, published in the journal Inflammatory Bowel Disease. She was at Cleveland Clinic. It's a case report of successful treatment of a pediatric patient with LDN. Um, Jill Smith's next study was in 2011. This was published in Digestive Disease Sciences. She's still at Penn State. It was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, and this time, the primary endpoint was safety and efficacy. Um, there was a second endpoint of endoscopic healing, which was the first time that had been looked at in a study. So there were 40 patients over 12 weeks. Uh, at the end of the 12 weeks, um, the patients who got placebo were moved to LDN, and the LDN patients were continued for another 12 weeks. By the CDAI, there was an 88% response rate versus there's a high response rate in placebo too, 40% placebo. When she did colonoscopy, 78% had a, a response seen on the colonoscopy from before and after, and 33% were found to be in remission by colonoscopy, and that was only 8% placebo. And the biopsies showed uh, improvement from baseline. And if you took um, the patients who were on placebo for 12 weeks and then got moved to LDN, at the end of that 12-week period, the results were pretty much the same that you see from the ones who were treated with LDN from the beginning. If you look at the patients who were on LDN and kept them on another 12-week, there was not much benefit seen past that going to a full 24 weeks. But the remission rate, in, if just going by the CDAI, went up from 33% to 50%. So a little bit more, but not, not a ton. Three quarters of these patients were also on additional medications, and they could, take up, they could take prednisone up to 10 milligrams a day to be included in the study. They were not allowed to be on TNF inhibitors for four weeks before the study. Her next study was in 2013, looking at pediatric patients. This was published in the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology. It was randomized, placebo-controlled. And again, it was placebo or LDN for eight weeks, then moved over to LDN for eight weeks. Primary endpoint for the kids was just safety and tolerability, so not designed to look for efficacy. But by the pediatric CDAI scores, there was a 67% response rate, 25% remission. 
and all of them showed improved quality of life. Um, this next study is in 2018. This was published in the Journal of Translational Medicine, and it's a prospective open-label uh, study. And this was looking at both patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. They did colonoscopy with biopsies, and they also did the, um, the self-assessments. And there was clinical improvement in 74.5%, remission in 25.5%. And they did, everyone had colonoscopy at the beginning. Only 12 patients had colonoscopy at, at the 12-week mark. Six of those were responders, and six of those were patients that were in remission by their CDI scores. Of the six patients who were in remission by the scores, five of those had gone into remission by the endoscopic scores, so looking at them on a colonoscopy. This is actually the same study. Um, the lead author has a very long name, so it wound up on two slides, but it's the same study. Um, this is Dr. Weinstock again. This is a case series that he did in 2014 with 12 patients treated with LDN anywhere from 69 weeks up to 270 weeks. 50% um, response rate by self-assessment, and two out of 12 had remission on re repeat colonoscopy. And I, the very dramatic picture, your before LDN picture, and then your after LDN for 15 months picture, which can definitely tell. Um, we're going to talk about psoriasis next. Um, psoriasis is a chronic inflammatory disease, um, which I'm sure you've all seen, redness, itching, pain. Some patients will have bleeding. It affects about 3% of patients in the U.S., 100 million people worldwide. And about 10% of these patients also have an inflammatory arthritis. Patients, they have poor quality of life. They have increased mortality. The pathogenesis, um, within the plaques, you have higher levels of T cells, interleukins, TNF. Um, you have, within the patients, increased levels of IL-23. Um, and this has a shift from the T regulatory cells to more T17 cells, which are very pro-inflammatory and secrete a lot of cytokines. You also have mast cells in and around the plaques. And they're very troublesome by themselves, secrete a lot of inflammatory cytokines. Here we are, next slide. Secreting interleukins, TNF. The mast cells also are very toxic to the sensory nerves, and they seem to be activated by an abnormal microbiome. The way we think LDN works with psoriasis is that you have decreased T cell activity, and that's both with the, that's with the increased endorphins, probably also though with the TLR effect. You have less conversion to the T17 cells. We think that LDN decreases mast cell activity. In fact, your Dr. Weinstein has another whole amount of research looking at that. LDN also blocks the TLR receptors on the mast cells. So that was how the increased endorphins, the TLR is just looking at them themselves it seems to decrease neuroinflammation in the sensory nerves. And because the TLR receptors are on the microglia, you have downregulation of um, inflammation in that path also. That's a case study by Dr. Weinstock. This is a 35-year-old male who had psoriasis with the arthritis, abdominal pain, diarrhea, 
He had failed a number of things, including topical steroids, and he had declined immunosuppressants. And he was treated with LDN starting at one milligram a day and titrating up to four and a half. And at two months, had a significant amount of improvement in the skin lesions, much improved arthritis pain, and his GI symptoms were completely resolved. And this is a picture of the patient's elbow before and after two months of the LDN. And then the knee before and after the two months. This is a case series um, that we did together. So this includes a number of my patients. There were 14 patients total treated with LDN, mean age 57. They had all had psoriasis a long time. Um, seven of them had arthritis as well. And five had failed one or more topical um, treatments. And 10 had had a partial response. So on LDN, we had kind of a mixed benefit. We had seven with marked improvement, two with moderate, and then five with no benefit. So in total, if you looked at the number of patients with any, any improvement at all. That was about 10 out of 15, so two-thirds. Um, adverse events are pretty typical for LDN, some mild insomnia, transient headache, transient diarrhea, but nobody withdrew for the adverse effects. Um, this is a case report, um, and this was a 60-year-old person with plaque psoriasis covering about 10% of the body, treated with LDN 4.5 five milligrams per day, and um, significant improvement at three months. At six months, it was down to covering only 1% of the body, and the severity index had decreased significantly. This is a case report I found in the literature. 75-year-old was just said to be successful, but I couldn't find the full text without paying for it, so that was as far as I got on that one. This one was another case report just this year, a 38-year-old female with a very severe form of psoriasis, covering the entire body with lots of swelling in the face, the arms and legs, was put on LDN 4.5 milligrams a day for six months, and very early at 10 days had resolution of the itching and decreased swelling in the face and extremities. There are pictures of this online if you go and pull the full text article. It's really interesting. At 20 days, there was already considerable reduction in the plaques, and she was able to go back to work. And at three months, she was in complete remission, and she had maintained that remission at six months. And they didn't give follow-up past that in the, in the published study. This, now, this series is on something, it's not psoriasis, but it's another inflammatory skin disease called Haley-Haley disease, and this kind of made a big splash in the press because it made it to JAMA dermatology. This case series was at Cleveland Clinic. Um, it was a case series of three patients. They were treated with LDN somewhere between 1.5 and 3 milligrams per day. Um, and they were assessed by the dermatologist as far as their clinical response. And two patients had an 80% improvement, one had a 90% improvement, and all of them were reporting significant improvement in quality of life scores. The second one also was in JAMA Dermatology, same year, different places, was at Emory University. Again, a case series of three patients, anywhere from three to four and a half milligrams per day, and all had significant healing in the first couple of weeks, and then resolution by two months. This is a case series 
um, from just this year, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the name, but it was at the University of Barcelona, and it was a case series of 14 patients. And she didn't have as good a response with this group, so I thought it was only fair to include a study that wasn't as favorable as the others. Um, only two patients had a sustained response for over a year. Six of the patients had no improvement. Six of the patients had initial improvement, but then they relapsed. But the thing, looking at this study, which I couldn't quite figure out why, but nine out of 14 of the patients were actually treated with LDN, were treated with naltrexone in a dose higher than would be considered low-dose naltrexone, and they actually went all the way up to 50 milligrams per day, which is not something you would really expect to have the same sort of beneficial effects as using low-dose naltrexone. So I don't know how, you know, how, how valid all the, those results are. But, um, and then there was a review article just this year in JAMA Dermatology, Elkham, and they reviewed the literature from 71 to 2018, and there were two, 22 articles that they included, and they were clinical trials, case reports, case series, and they said they had found it to be safe and effective in the treatment of Haley-Haley disease and a few other things, and potential for treatment in chronic inflammatory skin conditions, which is a pretty big thing with a conservative journal. So that covers psoriasis, and it brings us to autoimmune thyroid disease, which is kind of a hot topic lately. Um, this covers patients with both Hashimoto's and Graves' disease. Um, these patients, we've got, it's an autoimmune disease, antibodies made to TPO and thyroglobulin, and you end up having chronic inflammation with IL-1, IL-6, the TNF. Um, the pathophysiology here with the inflammation is you have decreased conversion of T3 to T4, and this is because two of the deiodinase enzymes are um, downregulated with inflammation. And so you have decreased conversion of T4 to T3, you have decreased transport of T3 into the cells, then so you end up with an intracellular deficiency of T3. The deiodinase that con converts T4 to reverse T3 is upregulated, so you end up getting an increased amount of reverse T3. T3 itself, it's not helpful, and it's also an antagonist of the T3 receptors. So this overall state ah, ends up being contributing to the whole problem. How we think LDN helps is we have reduced inflammation. LDN can reduce the levels of your antithyroid antibodies, although not always. We think it may improve the transport of thyroid into the cells, it may improve the conversion, it may reduce the conversion to reverse T3. So it's a case study, a patient of mine, 64-year-old um, female who had metastatic breast cancer and a history of discoid lupus and mixed connective tissue disease. So she presented with a lot of joint pain, severe pain in her sternum, she had depression, insomnia, she'd gained a lot of weight since starting chemo. Um, and, let's see. When she came to me, her current meds were tamoxifen, and she was getting um, IV um, denosumab once a month. Her baseline labs, sedrate, vitamin D, tumor markers, chemistries were all normal. Her thyroid levels were really nothing to write home about, 
but her anti-TPO antibodies, which normal is below 61, hers were almost 6,000, which was the highest I had ever seen. So we put her on LDN and started her at 1.5 milligrams and titrated her up to 4.5. And after about one month, her energy was a little bit better, but her pain hadn't really changed a lot. After another six weeks, she had complete resolution of the pain in her sternum, and almost all the joint pain was gone except for a little pain in her left hip, which was probably was an osteoarthritis sort of thing. But the interesting, the reason I include this is because at three months, I rechecked her anti-TPO antibodies just for fun, and they were down to 278. So that was kind of interesting. So I, I like the idea of using um, LDN to treat um, thyroid, autoimmune thyroid, because right now we don't really have anything that addresses the underlying problem. If they get low, you give them thyroid replacement. If they get high, you put them on methimazole. But we don't really have anything that goes and actually treats the autoimmune problem, except for you know the things we do with integrative and holistic medicine. So, but as hard as I tried, I could not find anything in the literature on autoimmune thyroid and LDN. So I'm unable to give you any published study for that, but I will tell you that in the community of integrative people who are treating autoimmune thyroid, a lot of people are using LDN, a lot of people are reporting success with it. So it's probably just a matter of time before somebody publishes something. So if any of you want to be the first ones to do that, then you could be included in my slide presentation next time. And I think that that's all that I have. So um, everybody does it differently. So that's kind of the thing about prescribers in LDN. You can talk to a lot of different people, and they'll give you a lot of different answers. And it's going to end up be, being once you get used to it, you'll kind of have your own way of doing it. I generally, it depends on how patient, this, my patients, how sensitive they are to medicine, because some of them are really sensitive, and they're very nervous. And I get afraid if I start them too high, they'll just quit and not try it again. So I'll usually start them at like 1.5 milligram, and then depending on how miserable they are with their underlying disease, I might raise it more quickly or I might raise it more slowly. But usually I'll do like one and a half for a week and then go to three milligrams a day, maybe for a couple weeks, maybe a month. And then depending on where they are, if people get all better on three milligrams, I might just leave them on three. If they're not, I'll bring them up to 4.5. So it's kind of my general rule, but sometimes I'll do it different. My wife has ulcerative colitis and has had for probably 15 years. About 10 years ago, she did a support group, and the word went around about LDN. We all educated ourselves on it. She's been on it for the last 10 years in complete remission, so it's oh, been important wow. for her. However, on a different subject, on multiple sclerosis, I have a friend of mine, a female, about 75 years old, who's been disabled almost for years with MS. And <clears throat> I mentioned LDN to her, and she said, why don't you send me some material, which I did, and I sent her back the material of it. And her response to me was, that, that sounds very good. Uh, she's not really the kind of person who's going to dig into it herself. Mm -hmm. She said, I'll talk with my doctor about it. Well, now you know how that's going to end. 
So is there anything that she could say to her doctor that would convince him that, let's give it a try. I'm not afraid of the results because it's been shown to be non-harmful. Uh, maybe even helpful, maybe it won't, but certainly the results you presented indicate that it can be indeed helpful. Certainly in the UK, a lot of people are on it. Mm -hmm. So what can she tell her doctor that will be helpful to convince him, let's give it a shot? That is a great question, and the LDN Research Trust actually on the website has a whole packet that you can actually print out and bring to your doctors. It's designed specifically for that purpose. There's also um, a review article by researchers at Stanford University. Um, I have Jared Younger? Hmm? Jared Younger? Yes, Dr. Younger. So Jared Younger, it's a review article, 14 pages long or so, but it lays it out very well in terms that a doctor would be able to understand. And then at the back of it, there's like 50 references for further study. So it's very, very well written. And um, if you can get a doctor to read it, is that on our website? It should be on there. We can get you the reference, though, after, if you remind me. So my last practice in San Diego um, was integrative, and so a lot of the patients that came in had already made all these different changes in their life. They were already eating really clean. Most of them were already gluten-free. Their vitamin D levels were optimized, and you know they were stress management. They like everything was perfect, and you would add LDN, and they would do really well. So I have a great contrast now because I'm at this free clinic in Yorktown and these patients are, their socioeconomic status is really poor and they're gonna eat whatever they can find and fruits and vegetables and gluten-free is just not an option for the folks. And they're horribly stressed, they're working two and three jobs, they're not sleeping, they're not exercising. Um, and I've actually had pretty good response to LDN, which just blows my mind because you would think you wouldn't see any response. But I recorded a talk um, for the LDN Research Trust um, on the work that I've been doing in the free clinic. So I, I think they would probably all do better if they all had that other stuff being addressed too. And I do my best, but it's really hard. But yeah, they, it's, they still respond. It's amazing. So about a year and a half ago, Linda connected me with the owner of the pharmacy, and he's doing a special special donation to our patients. So it was kind of a, it was a, a, a char charity for our nonprofit. So the longest ones I know were the um, the retrospective reviews that were being done at Penn State by Terrell and those folks looking back. That was like a 10-year ten, ten span, I think, that they were looking back into charts and following them. But going forward, there aren't real, a whole lot of longitudinal studies going very far. So, But there's practitioners who've been prescribing it for a really long time. The very first conference I went to for the LDN Research Trust, there were a lot of um, physicians there who had come over from Europe. And Dr. Patrick Crawley was there. 
right? And he's, he's quite senior, and he had been prescribing it for like 20-some years, and the only problem he'd ever seen was patients just feeling better. So it was very encouraging. So then there's a lot of prescribers over there who had patients on it for that long. Dr. Bahari had patients on it a very long time. He passed in 2010, but very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most, they would say that most of the people who prescribe LDN are also taking it themselves because you just see all this stuff happening and you're like, why wait for something to go wrong before you start? <laughs> there are people who will just say the only way you can give it is at bedtime. And then there are people who will say the only way you can give it is in the morning. But I don't know if there's actually been studies showing that there's a difference. So I don't think we have any research studies showing that. Um, Dr. Bahari thought that there was a potential benefit to taking it at bedtime because you've got the mid-early morning release of endorphins. And he thought, well, maybe it could piggyback off that. So usually if I, have a, something, if I have a patient with something really serious like MS, I'll try them at bedtime first. And then if they have problems, I'll start moving it forward during the day. But I think in Europe, it's very often dosed early in the day. And oftentimes it just happens to be when your patients can remember to take it. Because if you have them taking a specific time and they forget it half the time, that doesn't help. But I found in my own practice, <clears throat> patients who took it during the day usually did just as well. So that's just my experience. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.